I'd like to talk to you, my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ, about the most misunderstood, misused, and misquoted passage in Scripture. I'm speaking about Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 36 through 38. This Gospel was proclaimed on Monday of the second week of Lent, so this past Monday. This is a short Gospel, so let me read it to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Stop judging, and you will not be judged. Stop condemning, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and gifts will be given to you. A good measure, packed together, shaken down, and overflowing, will be poured into your lap. For the measure with which you measure will in return be measured out to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is often used in a way that supports relativism. I'm referring to the section where Jesus says, Stop judging and you will not be judged. Stop condemning and you will not be condemned. Sometimes this passage is taken to mean that judging someone in any way is always wrong. It's taken to mean the notion of judgment against all judgment, so common today as the philosopher Peter Kraft has written. It's the idea that God forbids any kind of judgment, that those who judge will be condemned, that those who judge in any way are bigots, are moralists, are rigorists. Let's all just love one another, accept all ideas, behaviors, and beliefs. Let's just coexist, as the popular bumper sticker tells us. It's not hard to see how this can be related to moral indifferentism and moral relativism. First of all, let's define what relativism is. It's the false idea that there is no objective truth which transcends the human person. In other words, relativism holds that truth is a matter of personal opinion. Truth is something that can be molded and shaped to suit an individual's needs. Truth is pliable according to circumstances, according to one's wishes. Truth, then, is something purely subjective for the relativist. It's something he owns for himself. It's also important to note that relativism nearly always occurs within the context of human sexuality. In today's culture, sex is held up as a kind of God, when the question of what is sexually moral and licit as posed to today's relativist, he declares his view of sex as the winner and insists there is no such thing as objective moral truth on the matter. We see this in many areas relating to human sexuality, such as artificial birth control, so-called same-sex marriages, homosexual activism, cohabitation, premarital sex, pornography, and the like. But the relativist will not say it is true that people should be allowed to murder anyone who gets in their way or enslave people whenever they want, for example. So no one is a relativist in the strictest sense. 
We can see then that relativism is always wielded to suit the wishes of the individual. Much more can be said about the problem of relativism. Watch for an upcoming podcast. Another angle on the misuse and misunderstanding involved in our passage from Luke's Gospel is this. Some well-meaning Christians are convinced they should say nothing and do nothing when faced with someone who is committing grave sin. This kind of attitude can be based on a sincere misunderstanding of the biblical view of judgment, or it might be based on the concept of, let's go along to get along. The let's go along to get along attitude is harmful for a number of reasons. First, what about what is really true? And isn't it true to say that living by the truth in accordance with God's plan of love is the best way to live, a way to live which leads to the unending happiness found in God alone? Of course it is. Pope Benedict XVI noticed in Caritas and Veritate that the truth is necessary for the authentic development of the human person. To be charitable is to present what is true with love, to provide service to the truth by our life in society. Sometimes we're afraid of doing severe damage to relationships by speaking out about the truth, so we refrain from doing so. We kind of hide the truth away in a closet. It goes without saying that prudential judgment is needed in these matters. We don't want to drive people away, We need to meet people where they are, pray for them, and sincerely try to help them. There are many ways of doing that. Sometimes it's best to remain silent. That could be the case. Build bridges, then build roads to heaven with the truth. Let's take the example of Jesus. He never condemned a repentant sinner. The operative word here is repentant. However, he had many harsh words for the Pharisees, but he was never, ever permissive of sin. Anyone who reads the Gospels carefully will find many severe warnings against rejection of the commandments of God given by Jesus. Also, we have to ask, do we really care about someone enough to inform them of the possibility that their soul may be in grave peril? Do we really love our neighbor, or do we simply want to get along with him or her? Let me ask this question. Is it charitable to lack concern for someone's soul? No, it is not. It cannot be. Charity is not simply being nice to people. Charity is a theological virtue by which we love God above all else for his own sake, and we love neighbor for the sake of our love for God. Charity then always means to seek the other's true benefit and to will their authentic and true good. Charity doesn't hide the truth or cover the truth up. We cannot say we are acting in charity if we always refuse to warn people of paths in life that lead away from God roads that are spiritually dangerous. One final angle I often hear on this, although not the only other angle, is this. People often say, 
I believe people have a right to believe whatever they want. Is this true? Do people have a strict right to believe whatever they want? The gospel disagrees with this idea. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, we find this. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. Clearly, there are some requirements placed on us about what we must believe. But let's return again to our passage from Luke. What does this passage mean? How should it be interpreted? Here's a few key things to keep in mind. In the first place, Jesus is emphasizing mercy and forgiveness, which must always direct our actions, our thoughts, our words. As Christians, we must be merciful and forgiving. Jesus asks us to love and pray for our enemies. This is, of course, God's behavior, God's way of relating and loving and acting. God's logic is the logic of mercy and forgiveness. Jesus, of course, is the supreme example of mercy and forgiveness because he died on the cross to make redemption and salvation available to humankind. But the requirement to be merciful and forgiving would have been an especially difficult concept for Jesus' contemporaries to accept, given the severe persecution they suffered at the hand of the Roman Empire. Secondly, we're not to judge in a rash, judgmental, harsh, and condemnatory way. We must always view others through the lens of God's love. Let me quote the Catechism here. Article 2478 teaches, To avoid rash judgment, everyone should be careful to interpret insofar as possible his neighbor's thoughts, words, and deeds in a favorable way. Every good Christian ought to be more ready to give a favorable interpretation to another's statement than to condemn it. But if he cannot do so, let him ask how the other understands it. If the latter understands it badly, let the former correct him with love. If that does not suffice, let the Christian try all suitable ways to bring the other to a correct interpretation so that he may be saved. Those last words are essential. Let me emphasize them again. Bring the other to a correct understanding, a correct interpretation, so that he may be saved. So judgment, moral discernment, really ultimately is about salvation, our own salvation, and the salvation of our neighbor. A third principle, we must always judge ourselves first. Jesus told us to remove the beam from our own eye before removing the splinter from our brother's eye. So important. But notice he did not tell us to leave the splinter in our brother's eye. I propose when we think of judgment, we think of exercising prudential moral discernment. Ultimately, moral discernment is about the true benefit of man. It's about living life in accordance with God's plan of love, which leads to happiness, which is always the very best way to live. It's the life of true human flourishing. 
So people who insist that Jesus teaches us to never judge or morally discern in any way, or that he teaches us to never confront anyone committing serious sin, these people have not carefully read Scripture in its full context. Let's look at a few passages. A little later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus tells us this, Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins, and I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus tells us to take him before two or three witnesses. Clearly, this involves a verbal exchange. If he won't listen, take him before the church. If he won't listen even to the church, he is to be cast out as a Gentile and the tax collector. And in Matthew 18, verses 6 through 7, Jesus warns that if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. Again, this is a call for moral discernment, for fraternal correction. What about the Old Testament? What does it have to say on the matter? In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 8 and following, we find this. The Lord says, If I say to the wicked, O wicked ones, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but their blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and they do not turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Clearly, we have a responsibility to exercise fraternal correction to assist our brothers and sisters in attaining eternal life by raising them up from the mire of sin, by helping them to break those chains, those, those bonding chains of sin. Let me leave you with one final quote from the Catechism. Article 1868 teaches, Sin is a personal act. Moreover, we have a responsibility for the sins committed by others when we cooperate in them, by participating directly and voluntarily in them, by ordering, advising, praising, or approving them, by not disclosing or not hindering them when we have an obligation to do so, by protecting evildoers. I hope this has helped you to understand that the Bible does not roundly condemn judgment in the form of moral discernment ordered toward charity, nor does Jesus insist that we are not to judge in any way or confront sin in any way. These kinds of ideas are simply unbiblical. They're false. They're not helpful, and they do not elevate and heal people or society. 
Remember, the goal for the Christian is not only to get himself to heaven, but to bring others along also. It's said, you will not find a saint in heaven who got there alone. He will always find his way to heaven with those he helped to lift to heaven. Of course, we cannot judge the state of someone's soul. Only God can do that. However, if we're not working to lift people from the mire of sin and help usher them toward the heights of heaven, we're not living as a Christian. God bless you.